Welcome, welcome, welcome to Worship from Schweitzer. I'm Pastor Jason. We're thrilled that you're here today. If this is your first time, check in, let us know that you're here. We've got a gift card for coffee that we would love to send to you. Today we start week three of the sermon series, Why the World Is the Way That It Is. Pastor Spencer is going to be sharing with us a little bit later in the service. If you'd like to go deeper with the sermon and some of the teaching, you can go to Schweitzer.church/next where you will find an abundance of questions and there are small groups that are meeting that you can connect with to grow in your faith here at Schweitzer. Next up, we're going to hear about what's happening this week. Let's turn to our weekly announcements. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Schweitzer. If you are looking to take a next step and get connected with a small group or class, it is not too late to join us on Tuesdays at 6.30 as we are just getting started with some great classes that you can attend, along with a lot of other small groups meeting throughout the week. In addition to this, on Sunday, February 5th at 2.30, we'll be starting a new session of Grief Share. This video-based study is a place where you can explore grief with others in a supportive and an encouraging setting. You can find out more about all of our groups and classes at schweitzer.church groups or by stopping by the Blue Booth today. Coming up on Thursday, February the 2nd at 1130, our second season ministry, This Is Our Ministry for Those 50 and Up, will be hosting their monthly luncheon. This next month in February, we'll be hearing from the Victim Center and be encouraged as we spend time together. You can find out more and sign up online at schweitzer.church slash second season. Last but not least, this Friday, January 27th, our Schweitzer Kids team is hosting a free movie night featuring the movie Frozen. This is a great opportunity for families to invite friends to join them for a really fun time in our student center. We just ask that you sign up online so that we know how much popcorn to pop. There will be free popcorn for everybody. You can sign up online at schweitzer.church/kids. We are so glad that you're with us this morning. Let's continue with worship. Thanks, Stephanie, for sharing with us all those ways we can get connected at Schweitzer. If you're worshiping with us live, we encourage you to say hello in the chat room. If you need prayer, there's somebody in the prayer room that would be happy to pray with you. And now we continue in worship as we're reminded that the psalmist, as they woke up and they looked to the hills, they said, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. Let's worship together today. Hold on to me when it's too dark 
We've been working through the early pages of Genesis. We've been hearing about God's creation and how He's made us, which causes us, evokes within us a sense of worship. One of the prayers that the church has, has prayed together for a long time is a prayer called the General Thanksgiving. It's a prayer of worship, it's a prayer of adoration, it's a prayer of recalling all of God's goodness to us. And so I'd like to invite you to join me in this general prayer of thanksgiving. And then after that, there'll be a time of silence where we can lift up to the Lord the burdens that we're carrying this week, the things that are on our hearts and minds. And then we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. Join me in this general thanksgiving. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all the ages, we pray. Amen. Kind Father, we're grateful that we can turn to you in prayer, that you hear our praises, and you carry us in all the places where we need you, where we know that we need you. And you carry us when we, we can't even identify those places, but thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your presence to us. And now, uh, teach us to pray as we say the prayer Jesus taught us. When we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, an active part of, of worship is the act of giving. And that's a, a picture that pops up all kinds of places throughout the scripture. And it's something that we do on a on a weekly basis here in worship. And we can give through um, the Church Center app, we can give at Schweitzer online, Schweitzer.church slash give. Or if you wanna see your postal carrier, you can also you know, drop something by the post office. That works too, lots of ways to do it. But when we partner with God in the way of giving, there's some incredible things that happen. One of the things we say about Schweitzer is it's community focused. This last week at Schweitzer, um, 
A number of parents from Hickory Hills, a local elementary, gathered for a, a concert for fourth graders. Had a great time in the midst of, of the sanctuary. At the same time, on the campus of Swiser, there were a couple of new groups started. Uh, former retired pastor Bob Cassie <clears throat> led a class that's looking at um, our true identity in Christ. And then I led a class on the book, Be the Bridge, which is talking about racial reconciliation. So there we're seeking to live into the, fo- the focus of being Christ-centered. Giving matters, both in our own hearts, our own spirits, and then what it does in terms of making ministry possible. Thank you for your generosity. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And now, let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 2 in this series, Why the World is the Way That It Is. Hey, welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Today is part three of our series called Why is the World the Way That It Is? And we're exploring, uh, as we start this year, the first few chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter one through 11, that gives all kinds of explanation, understanding for, for why the world is the way that it is. And so we're starting this year, not looking ahead, but looking back, all the way back to the beginning as we as we start this year, I think of these first few chapters of Genesis like this, like I wear contacts and glasses, and when I put my glasses on, all of a sudden things become clear. Like, like what's fuzzy and confusing, I can see now and I can make sense of it. And I, I think of these first few chapters of Genesis that they, they do this, uh, this confusing world that becomes fuzzy and it's hard to make sense of. When you can look at it through the lens of these first few chapters of the Bible, so much of it becomes clear. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. We're traveling to the Garden of Eden and we're going to look at what life is like before sin and problems and dysfunction and family drama and all the things that that we see in this world. What was God's good and perfect intention for us and what do we learn from that? So Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 4. Here's what the Bible teaches about, about the Garden of Eden. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, as we work through this chapter, we need to remember a few things. We need to remember that this uh, chapter, Genesis 2, was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And as we go through this today, we're going to talk a lot about some some Hebrew words that have been translated because the Hebrew words bring so much life and uh, they expand the scope of this and the beauty of this is understood when you really can drill down on some of the Hebrew words. And one of the first Hebrew words to, to think about here is this word that we've translated here as as man, the Hebrew word for that is Adam. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the word Adam from. Yes, Adam, Adam. And, and Adam does not mean what you think it means. It does not mean man like 
like male. Instead, Adam is, is connected to the word uh, for earth, which is Adama. Uh, the, the word for male, man, is, is another Hebrew word. It's ish, which is connected to the word for woman, which is isha. And we're going to hold on to those words and tuck those away as we, as we walk through this because those words become so, so, so important as we, as we see the scope and the beauty and this message from Genesis chapter 2. So tuck those words away. And as we go through this, I'm going to keep bringing them up so that we can see uh, just how these words are used. So verse 8 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man, Adam, he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm, I wonder if that's going to come back in the story a little bit later. Let's go ahead. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now verse 18, this verse is so important. Verse 18 says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now we need to pause there because that's interesting. In Genesis so far, everything that God has made, God has called good. Genesis 1, day 1, God created light and he saw the light and he said it was good. Day 2, God creates and he saw what he creates and it's good. Day 3, he sees what he creates, it's good. And it keeps moving through here that every day that God creates, it's good. And it culminates, all this goodness culminates in day 6 in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates humans. And, and he says of these humans that it is not good, it is very good. And it's very good because you and I and everyone who's ever lived, we were made in the image and likeness of God. We have this special worth and dignity with God. And as the Bible says, we were, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made in another passage that, that this is how God sees us, this worth that we have. And, and this is true for all of us, whether we, you know, believe it or not, or feel that way or not, that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. We have this worth and this value to Him, and that when God sees us, He says, it is very good. It's true for you, it's true for me, and everyone who's ever lived. It's true for the rich as well as the poor. It's true for the strong as well as the weak, men and women. Everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. The people we love as well as our enemies. Everyone. We explored this last week in our, in our sermon. But now for the very first time, something is not good. And what is not good is that Adam, the man, is all alone. He was, he was made for connection. He was made for relationship. And here he is all alone. Verse 19, it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man, Adam, called each living creature, that was its name. So the man, Adam, he, he gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, again, same word, Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now let's talk about that word, suitable helper. Obviously, we're talking here about, about woman. Woman is going to be called the, the, the helper, the suitable helper that's given to the man. And, and I don't know about you, but when I hear that, that phrase, suitable helper, especially as you know it's coming to be describing as 
uh, a woman, you, you can't help but think that sounds a, a bit derogatory, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like God's going to make a servant for the man, a suitable helper. But, but this, this, this word, uh, suitable helper, it's not, it's not a derogatory term. Um, the word itself, the Hebrew word here is, is the word ezer. Think about that old song we sing in church, Come Thou Fount, who has this line in there, uh, Here I raise my Ebenezer. In the Bible, an Ebenezer is a Hebrew word meaning a, a, a pillar or a monument to remember God's salvation, God's God's helping. And this is how the word ezer is used in the Bible, that it's about, it's about this helping, and it's usually describing God. Let me give you some examples of this word in action. Um, Psalm 27, verse 9, speaking of the Lord, Psalm says, you have been my ezer, my helper. Psalm 10, God is the ezer, the helper of the orphan. Psalm 30, again, speaking of the Lord, where it's asking the Lord, would you be a helper, an ezer to me? And so in each of these examples, and almost every time in the Bible this word ezer is used, it's almost always used in relationship to God. So when you think about this word now, ezer being applied to, to woman, this word, suitable helper, is we're, we're, we're talking about here, this, this ezer, it is not about service. I mean, this word has nothing to do with whose job it is to empty the dishwasher. Uh, this this ezer is a, is a word that is almost always applied to, to God. And so as the Bible is introducing woman, this suitable helper, it's using the language that it would apply to, to God himself. This is a a der- not a derogatory term, but a term of, of honor that we have here, that the suitable helper is going to be found um, for the man. So verse 21, So the Lord God caused Adam, the man, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with the flesh. He's going to make the woman out of, out of this rib. And I want you to notice, uh, the woman is not made from the man's foot. It's made from the man's side. He's not a Above her, they live side by side as, as equals. And so keep reading here. And he closed up the place of the flesh. And then it says, Then the Lord God made a woman. The Hebrew word for woman is Isha. So he made an, a, an Isha from the rib he had taken of the man, Adam. And he brought her to the man, Adam. And then verse 23, because when the man sees the woman, Isha, he begins to sing. In verse 23 is his song. It says, The man said, or rather sang, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now I find it interesting that when the Bible describes the creation of man, it does it in one verse. When the Bible describes the creation of women, woman, it takes uh, six verses plus a song. So, you know, make what you will of that. And as we, as we put this together here, uh, we, we then see this, this last line. We connect the dots, um, verse 24, 25. It says, this is why, right? This is our sermon series. This is why. Why are things the way that they are? Well, here, let's connect some dots here. This is why a man, oh, we need to pause because the word just changed. The word here is no longer Adam. Now it's the word ish. What does ish mean? It means a man, like male, it's connected to the word for woman, which is Isha. And you, you, you have the, the word Adam, which is connected to the, to the earth, the ground, because that's how the man came. He came from the dust of the ground. And so the word for earth was Adama. The word for man was Adam. And now what you see is, is that Adam, for the very first time, with the creation of Eve, he becomes a man. It's almost as if, it's almost as if he, for the very first time, discovers who he really is with the introduction of her. And this is God's design for us, right? That we discover who we really are together in relationship with one another, not by ourselves. That, that this is just, the, the in, in, in 
inspired to us that from the, from the Lord that we would discover who we are together. And so this is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt uh, no shame. So Genesis chapter two is this uh, great picture of God's good and perfect intention for us. And what we see here in the life in the garden is how life was supposed to be uh, before sin and problems and family drama and dysfunction and pain and death and sickness and the list goes on and on and on of all these things that we see out in the world. But what was God's good and perfect intention for us before all of these kinds of things? This is what we see in Genesis chapter two, that life in the garden is God's good and perfect intention for us. Which is, it's no wonder then, if you fast forward to the New Testament, When Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he invites us to experience life in him, new life in him, his resurrection happens in a garden. Or at the very end of the Bible, where there's a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven, new earth, there's a city. And in the middle of the city, where this new heaven and new earth, where all things are are created new, or there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is, is, is gone away. But in this city, in the new heaven, new earth, is once again a garden. Because this is the picture of God's good and perfect attention for us. You see this, this thread woven throughout the scripture and these big movements of, of creation and then restoration and redemption and then final uh, creation, new creation in Christ. We see this, this thread woven that life will return to as it was in the beginning with no more crying or death or mourning or pain that there is this new life. And so what do we learn about this life in the garden, God's good and perfect attention for us? Well, a few things. First of all, we, we notice that as they are enjoying this perfect life, notice it's not like they're on a perpetual vacation. I mean, they're not, they're not sitting at the beach, you know, sipping cocktails, sitting back, taking it easy. No, no, no. These people are working. They're tending to the garden. They're, they're shepherding and, and stewarding this creation that God has made. And everything is working in harmony and peace together. This is how it was intended that there is work for them to do on behalf of what the Lord would have them to do because they're made in the image and likeness of God. And there's so much we could say about this work that they do, this good work, which we went into deep last week. So I encourage you to check out that sermon if you missed that. But obviously the bulk of Genesis chapter two that it leads to with this good and perfect um, intention of God is that we see this relationship, the relationship with between people and God, which is perfect, but also the relationship between people, which is perfect. And specifically what Genesis 2 really drives us toward is this marriage relationship, which is perfect. So because so much of that in this chapter is driven towards this marriage relationship, let's talk about that today. Genesis chapter 2, once again, verse 24, lays out this, this foundational understanding of God's intention for us in marriage. So let's look at this a few more times. Um, Genesis, and see what it teaches us. So verse 24 says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So God's good and perfect intention for us here, we, we learn a few things. You know, this is the bedrock verse in the Bible that so much of the New Testament teaching about marriage comes back to this specific verse that teaches us so much. There's a couple things we learn. First of all, we learn that God's design, God's intention for us in marriage is that we would be united. That's the word, right? That a man would leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. The traditional translation of this word is cleave. I mean, he'll leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, which I just secretly love because mostly because it rhymes. You leave and you cleave. This is 
this is what you have. But this idea of cleaving is, is about, it's about connection. It's about uh, unity. It's about intimacy and forming bonds together and, and, and being united with one another in a way that, that is unshakable and unseparable. This is what we have, this picture of, of what we have in the Bible is that in the marriage relationship, there is this space that is for the two of you where, where, where you are able to form intimate and connection and intimacy and connection and trust in a way that is just reserved for the two of you. It's an exclusive space. This is why the man leaves his father and his mother, because there's this new space for this family to form. And, and of eight billion people in the world, you've chosen this one other person in order to, to build this connection with, this, this intimacy with. And, and in this cleaving, we share our lives. Uh, we share our futures. We share our emotions. And we also share our, our bodies. Uh, one more time, Genesis 2, 24. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Become one flesh. That's a euphemism, quite obviously, for sex. I'll let you figure out why. But we see here this this biblical teaching that um, as they come together, they form this family. That's what the real Hebrew term here is, is about the forming of a family. Kind of like we might say you become flesh and blood. This is what happens in the, in the marriage relationship, really talking here about the, the relationship that happens sexually. And so you see this really strong biblical teaching from here, really throughout the pages of the Bible, that sex in biblical thought is never just about a physical action. It's really about connection. It's about intimacy. It's about creating bonds and forming deep relationship and trust with one another. But whenever we forget that and we start to think that it's about a physical relationship, well, that's that's where we miss it. And how much trouble do we bring into our lives when we think that this is just about a physical relationship, a physical act that takes place? And so Genesis chapter two, we see this, um, this teaching here, this life in the garden, God's good and, and perfect intention for us. What life was like before the fall, before sin and problems and selfishness and dysfunction and family drama and all the things that go with it. What was life like? And as we, as we look at this, we, we start to see with a bit more clarity, if this was God's will for us, we can begin to see um, why the world is the way that it is and maybe some of why we are the way that we are. There's some clarity that comes with this. Because as you think about life in the garden, as we read in Genesis 2, you start to see some impulses that are true for all of us. All of us, for instance, have an impulse for good and meaningful work, just like we see the man having in this garden. It's an impulse for tending to the world in a way that makes a difference. We all have an impulse for this. We want our lives to matter in that kind of way. We also all have an impulse for connection and intimacy with others. Whether you're single or you're married, all of us have an impulse for for community, for connection with others. And this is what we see being resembled in the, in, the, in the garden. This is what we see being taught. This is what God's good and perfect intention for us is. And so as we look at this, this picture of life in the garden, you know, we see these, these impulses. We see this good and holy thing that God has created. And we see this, this target then for what we're aiming for. Because if this is God's good and perfect intention, well, certainly this is how we want to live. We want to live as life in the garden was meant to be lived. But also... As we look out upon the world, we also see quite clearly that um, while life in the garden was presented like this, that's certainly not the reality of how the world is today. 
Now, God's good and perfect intention for us is now marked by things like sin and selfishness and brokenness and pain and turmoil and violence and conflict. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Because our world is no longer marked by God's good and perfect intention. Instead, we live in a world that lives on the other side of Genesis 3, which we're going to get to next week. A world on the other side of sin. And so these impulses we have for good and meaningful work, they become warped. And we find ourselves not living for good and meaningful work, but many of us, we know we just tolerate our work. Or we don't know why our work matters in the wider scope of God's good purposes. Or or maybe we have impulses for, for, for intimacy and connection with others, but instead we live in a world where half of marriage is in and divorce. I mean, that's the common statistic we've all heard. Or, or at least um, we just, maybe some of us just tolerate our marriages. Or some of us live with deep loneliness inside of us because while we have these impulses for connection, we see that this is not the reality of the world. And so we look forward to a day when Jesus restores all things. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and we get to live again in God's good and perfect world. But what do we do with this until then? I mean, what difference does this make? I mean, when we read Genesis 2, what do we do with this? We just set it aside as naive and move on with our day because this is just so um, different from the world we live. I mean, what do we, what do we make sense of this? How do, we, how do we think about this? You know, I look at Genesis 2, I see this real common thread that's woven throughout this chapter, really teaching us that what is at the heart of God's good and perfect intentions for us. And as I, as I look at this thread, whether it's through our work or it's our relationships with others, I can't help but notice that really this good life that we see in Genesis 2 is really connected to one big idea that we see in this chapter. Life in the garden, if it was marked by anything, it was marked by the fact that at the center of everything is God himself. The centrality of the Lord, where, where everything in life revolves around him. He provides meaning to us in our work. He provides uh, context and commitment to us in our relationships. Everything that we are and live in, we live in dependence on him. This is what we see in Genesis 2, that these first people are living in, in dependence on the Lord. They trust him. They walk in relationship with him. And this is what life in the garden is like. And so if we want to use the garden as our, as our target for what God's good and perfect world is for us, his, his intentions for us, then we have to understand that our own lives have to be lived with the Lord at the center, where we trust Him, we depend on Him, we live in His presence, and everything else exists to serve Him because He is at the center of everything. And if you make the Lord the center of your life, you're going to begin to taste what it feels like to live in God's will, but you're also going to experience incredible pushback because living with the Lord in the center of your life is going to put you at odds with what the world teaches and all of the impulses we have from this sinful and broken world. Let me get a, give you a really practical example of this. I'm uh, talking about marriage today from Genesis 2. Let me kind of give you an example from this looking at marriage. Um, years ago, when I was newly married, I had a mentor who gave me some marriage advice that I have taken to heart. We quote this in our house on a regular basis, this marriage advice. It's so good. It's so um, helpful. Um, and, and it's something that when I meet with couples who want to get married, I tell them this marriage advice. This has become like my sermon for when I officiate weddings is this marriage advice. But on the surface, it's, it's kind of harsh. 
and it doesn't feel very romantic, like you would never make a Hallmark card out of this marriage device because it, it flies in the face of how our world works and the message that you receive from the world. But I believe it's right in line with Genesis 2 of, of making the Lord the center of your life. But it's it feels kind of harsh. Like this summer, Abby and I went out to dinner for our, our anniversary and the waitress was making small talk with us and she found out it was our anniversary. So she's asking us if we had any marriage advice. And like, I was embarrassed to tell her this advice because it sounds so counter to what you hear in the world. But here, here's the advice. This mentor gave it to me 20 plus years ago. It's so, so helpful. Um, but here it is, two parts. The first part, if you want to have a good marriage, he would say this, you need to uh, lower your expectations. Isn't that great? You need to lower your expectations. Key to a good marriage, lower your expectations. But as you do that, you need to raise your commitment. So two things, lower your expectations and then you raise your commitment. Now, as you think about that basic idea there, lower your expectations, raise your commitment, it's not hard to notice how the message of the world is the exact opposite. That when we come to these relationships like marriage, what we tend to do in the message of the world towards us is that we raise our expectations. And then when people fail to meet them, we then lower our commitments. And this may not be said out loud, but how many people enter into a marriage with these crazy expectations that this other person is going to um, make me complete? This other person is going to make me find joy. This other person is going to solve my loneliness. This other person is going to make me happy. And these are crazy expectations because the truth is the person you married is exactly that a person. They're incapable of doing those things that you just, you just said. And so when they fail to live up to those expectations, what the message of the world is, is that then you, uh, then you lower your, your commitment to them. And so you, you may not leave, but although lots and lots of people do, but it could just be that you check out of your marriage, you disengage. This is another way of lowering your commitment to the person. But what, what this advice says is, okay, first of all, you need to lower your expectations and then you raise your commitment because you lower your expectations, understanding that this person can't do for me those kinds of things. This person is incapable of making me happy. This other person is incapable of completing me. This other person is incapable of making me joyful, the solving my loneliness. This other person can't do that because they're a person. And when I realize that, I then need to raise my commitment to them. And so things in my marriage become much more important. Virtues like patience and forgiveness and bearing with one another. Those kinds of virtues become more important when you raise your commitment because you've lowered your expectations. Now, the reason I find that advice so helpful is because I think it's right in line with Genesis chapter two. How many problems do we have in life because we've disordered our life? We end up putting the wrong things at the center. And so in a marriage, it's very simple. You can put the wrong things in the center of your life where you begin to look at this other person in order to do things for you that they're incapable of doing. They can't complete you. They can't bring satisfaction to you. They can't solve your loneliness, but God can. And we start to look at other people to do these things that God can do. What we end up with is, is, is a disordered life. We've put the wrong things in the center, put the wrong things first. And it's no wonder then that we're miserable or there's no wonder that we can't find joy. It's no wonder that we, we feel bad because we've, we've li we're living in the wrong kind of order with the wrong things in the center. And that can happen in marriage. But there's all kinds of things that you can put in the center of your life. It could be your spouse. It could be your work. It could be money. It could be comfort. 
It could be accomplishments, it could be reputation, it could be making sure people like you. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can put in the center of your life where you end up disordered. And if you have anything at the center of your life, you are going to miss out on the life that God has for you because you were created to live with the Lord in the center. And as soon as you start putting anything else in the center, you're gonna miss out on this good and perfect life that God has intended for us. But as we return to Him, and we start to put Him in the center, we start to taste this, this beginning of what this new life is like that will eventually be culminated in the new heaven and the new earth where we live in God's perfect will for us. And so this morning, we think about this question. Why is the world the way that it is? Let's put some glasses on and think with clarity about this world, some, some insight here. And I wonder, why, why is it that there are so many people who are miserable? Why is it that there's so many people who despite their best effort, they never find joy? And I just can't help but wonder, is it because we've disordered our lives and we've put the wrong things at the center? Because you and me and everyone else who's ever created, we were created first for relationship with God, being dependent on Him, serving Him, knowing Him, living with Him in the center of our lives so that everything else revolves around Him. Let's pray together. And so, Father, today, um, we look at this life in the garden. And we, first of all, we just need to confess that there are these temptations to put other things in the center. And for others, some of us, we know exactly the things that we've put in the center. We've, we can name the things that we've been chasing uh, that, that are not you. And maybe some of them are even good things, but Lord, anything that's at the center of our lives that is not you is gonna lead us away from your will and your purpose for us. It's gonna lead us away from joy. It's gonna lead us away from what you have for us. And so Lord, today, would you convict us of anything in our life that we've put in the center that's not you? Would you forgive us as we repent and confess this and give us clarity about how we can better live with you in the middle of everything? And for anyone who's with us today who doesn't, doesn't, hasn't made that commitment to, to center their life in you, to make you the center of everything, we just want to offer up a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin? Would you lead my life? It's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of putting you in the middle of everything. Lord, we thank you that one day we will live in a new heaven and a new earth with a garden in the middle where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because we're going to live in your good and perfect will. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us in worship today. We hope this experience was something that encouraged you and challenged you because we all want to grow in our faith and walk closer to Christ. So thanks for joining us. Thanks too to Stephanie, to Alec, to Spencer, to all the people who helped create this worship experience and environment. If you were encouraged or challenged, we encourage you to take a moment and share this experience with a friend, with a neighbor, with a relative, somebody that you care deeply about. We look forward to seeing you next week where we are continuing in the sermon series, Why the World Is the Way That It Is. We'll see you then. Amen. Never fails me